calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Obscene. It was a cold and gray Monday in December of 2006 when I got fired from the bowling alley for selling an eighth of shrooms to my co-worker. I'd sold him the bag the previous Friday and over the weekend he'd apparently gotten caught with it. It was then that I learned that the co-worker I'd sold the shrooms to was also my boss's son. I cleaned out my locker and left, already cursing myself for being such a moron, already anxious about how I was going to pay next month's rent. I got in my car and started driving down 4th Street. I looked at the snow-covered buildings and houses, at the people, all of them so busy, rushing from place to place. I felt like driving my car until it ran out of gas and then walking into the woods. But it was at just that moment that I passed a sign that grabbed my attention. It was in the window of a single-story office building on the corner of Maple and Forth. C.M. Slaughter, Private Investigator, the sign read. And below it, In the corner of the window was a red and white poster that said, Help Wanted, in big block letters. It wasn't my first choice for an occupation. I hadn't grown up idolizing Dick Tracy or Philip Marlowe. I wasn't even particularly interested in solving mysteries. But if I didn't find another job soon, I'd have to go back to telemarketing. 
and I was willing to be wrong, but in that moment, working for a PI sounded a lot more interesting than telemarketing. I parked my car and fixed the collar of my shirt, inspecting my face in the rearview mirror before getting out. When I pushed through the door into the little brick building, I saw a dimly lit office. Furniture and chairs were scattered around the room in a semi-organized fashion. A combination printer scanner stood against the far wall, and next to it, a dozen or so cameras and pieces of recording equipment sat clustered on a table. A few feet away from me sat a man with wide, drooping shoulders and deep-set eyes. He sat hunched over a wooden desk, wearing a t-shirt and jeans, and watching what looked like baseball highlights on his computer. I felt oddly relieved at his total lack of formality. Are you Mr. Slaughter? I asked. Yeah, I'm Chris, he said. What can I do for you? My name's Noel, I told him. I turned and pointed at the front window. I saw your sign, I said. I'm looking for a job. Do you have any experience, he asked, looking back at his computer screen. You mean like investigative experience, I asked. I'll take that as a no, he said. I held a hand up as if I were a lawyer objecting to something in court. Well, I did take a criminal justice class at the community college, I said. He shrugged. I mean, it is just an assistant position, he said, folding his arms and looking at me as if to assess my character. That's fine with me, I said. I'll do whatever you need done. I'll show up every day, I'll file paperwork, I'll clean the bathrooms. I just... I stopped myself before I could say any more, already a little embarrassed. I hadn't expected to come off so desperate. All right, he said. Do you have a resume you can give me? I can send it to you when I get home, I said, if email's okay. He nodded, and we spoke a few minutes longer until he told me he had a phone call with a client and had to go. I shook his hand and walked out, and later that night I emailed him my resume. Careful, it made no mention of Star Lane's bowling alley. I had only worked there for three weeks, so it didn't exactly leave a gaping hole on my resume. Though I'm sure Chris had the means to find out about it if he really wanted to. It was a shot in the dark, but those are the shots you take when you're living hand to mouth. When he called me a few days later and offered me a job, I was a bit surprised. The more we talked, though the clearer it became that people weren't exactly tripping over each other to apply for the role. And, having just recently opened his business, he needed the help. I started the following week, and as expected, what I did was not very glamorous. I filed paperwork, made phone calls, booked appointments. Occasionally, I'd get the scoop on an interesting case, but in a city like Gillette, Wyoming, those were few and far between. A lot of the time, Chris was hired by law firms to surveil people suspected of insurance fraud or theft. People who owed debts or stopped paying their child support. When I'd taken the job, I'd hoped to hear of sordid love triangles, but much to my chagrin, there weren't many spurned lovers who hired Chris to photograph their cheating partners. It was all relatively mundane. Until the day Raymond Treacher walked through the door. Raymond was a slight man with a gentle demeanor, 
He held his arms crossed in front of his body and had the presence of a timid child waiting for his turn to speak. He had a thin mustache and sandy blonde hair that hung over his ears, and was dressed in a faded paisley shirt that was tucked neatly into the waist of his dockers. Under one arm he held a slim accordion folder. Chris and I sat in silence at our respective desks, waiting for the feeble-looking man to introduce himself. After a long silence, he finally said, I'd like to talk to someone about my sister. She's missing. Well, she started a cult, and all of them are missing. A few more seconds elapsed while Chris and I stared at him in disbelief. They called themselves the Allegiant Redeemers, he went on, his face bearing a plaintive expression. Have you heard of them? I, uh, uh, no, Chris replied, seeming to bumble the response. Is he lying? I wondered. He quickly stood and offered the man a seat at his desk. The man sat down and Chris asked him if he wanted a water or a coffee, but the man shook his head. I'm sorry, I didn't get your name, Chris said, reaching across the desk to shake the man's hand. My apologies. I'm Raymond Tretcher. The man replied, Raymond, I'm very sorry to hear what you've gone through, and I appreciate you coming in, but a case where multiple adults are missing would have to be handled by the police. They're going to have a lot more resources than... But Raymond was already holding up his hand to stop him. The police have already conducted their investigation, he said. Well, technically, the investigation is still open. But unless some new evidence is uncovered, the whole thing is stuck at a standstill. They put an APB out, but without proof of a crime, they're not willing to do much else. They told me it's not against the law to disappear, but I'm afraid that if some other action isn't taken, we might never find them. Chris half turned and looked at me incredulously. I'm sure he could read the shock on my face. So, how many were there? He asked. How many members of this cult? There were seven, Raymond said, including my sister. A shiver ran down my spine. How could seven people just vanish? And where did they live? Chris asked. Were they all together in one house? Raymond swallowed dryly. My sister owned a ranch on the outside of town, he said. They've all lived there together for the last few years. I'd fallen out of touch with her until recently. I had asked her if she wanted to get together, maybe for dinner sometime around Christmas. She said she'd think about it. But then she called me a few days later and said that she didn't think she'd make it until Christmas. I asked her what that meant, but she didn't respond. That afternoon when I got off work, I drove over to the ranch. It was empty. They were all gone. And why hasn't the press gotten hold of this yet? Chris asked. I'm sure they'd love to, but the police haven't released a statement yet. Chris glanced at me again. There was something dubious in his eyes. How long ago did this happen? He asked. Almost a month ago, Raymond replied. And you have no indication as to where they went? Chris asked. Your sister never talked about leaving? 
She never prophesied any doomsday scenarios or anything. Raymond took a deep breath. No, he said. I don't know. I wasn't exactly a follower of hers or anything. I wasn't around when they were doing whatever they did. Right, Chris said, nodding. Well, I'm very sorry to hear what you've gone through, and I can absolutely try to help you find your sister and her companions, but I'm going to need some more background information. Do you have the names of everyone in the party? Raymond nodded, taking the accordion folder from his lap and placing it on the desk. He opened it and handed Chris the contents. It included photographs of the Allegiant Redeemer's property on the southern edge of town near Antelope Valley. It also included names and photos of all the members, including several photos of Raymond's sister, Agatha Tretcher. There was a clear resemblance between Agatha and Raymond. Oddly, though, she looked much older than he did, her hair running gray and wrinkles forming beneath her eyes. As I watched Chris flip through the photographs of her, I noticed a consistent lack of emotion in her expression. I'd always thought of cult leaders as eccentrics with bright personas, even if they were hiding something sinister underneath. But Agatha Treacher had a cold, menacing stare. She was nothing if not ominous, and looking at her made me wonder what her followers could have seen in her. I wanted to know more about the Allegiant Redeemers and what they believed. Chris and Raymond went on talking, and when Chris was satisfied that he had enough information to get started, he stood and shook Raymond's slim hand. I won't ask for anything today, but you should know that my rate is $60 an hour. For you, I'll knock it down to 50 Tomorrow, I'll go out to the property and see what I can find. That's just fine. Thank you, Raymond said. He turned to leave, but before he reached the door, he turned back and said, I trust you'll have the discretion not to leak any of this to the press. I'd rather keep things confined until we understand what happened. Just for my family's sake. He looked not only at Chris as he said this, but at me, too. It was the first time he'd looked at me directly in the eyes since he'd walked in the door, and in his gaze I could see the remnants of that same dead stare I'd seen in the photographs of his sister. Of course, Chris replied, and Raymond turned to leave. The following day, when I came in for my shift, Chris was on the phone with the local police department. He was trying to get them to send over their case file for the disappearance of Agatha and her followers but because the investigation was still technically an open one, they were refusing to share anything with him. He shared a handful of choice words in closing and then slammed the phone down into its cradle. Can I come with you? I asked when he seemed like he'd collected himself. Where? he said, turning to me. The ranch? I nodded and he looked at me glumly. Wouldn't you be curious if you were me? I asked. I mean, don't you want to know what they believed? Not as much as I want to know where they are, or whether they're still alive, he said. He picked up his car keys and his coat, and then lingered for a few seconds near the door. Well, are you coming? he asked. Agatha Treacher's property was located at 17 South Winford Lane, on the southern edge of town, 
where the properties get further and further apart, until you're liable to drive several miles before spotting a lone structure on the horizon. As we drove, I asked Chris if I could look through the evidence he'd collected so far. He looked at me begrudgingly, and then reached into the back seat and produced a folder containing the paperwork Raymond had given him the day before. I opened it and started thumbing through the pages. The first few pages consisted of pictures of the residents. They weren't high definition, but were clear enough to provide a good idea of what the place looked like. It sat on the center of a sprawling property. Rolling hills and groves of scattered trees extended away as far as the eye could see. The structures themselves didn't look quite like I'd expected them to. It looked more like an industrial facility than a residence or a cult compound. A blue metal building the size of a small warehouse stood at the center, where a long dirt driveway came to an end. Next to it were two small wooden structures, perhaps cabins, and a few hundred yards away sat two mobile homes on opposing sides of what looked like a well house. The photos appeared to have been taken recently, or at least taken at the same time of year. In the pictures, the snow on the ground looked fresh, as if it had recently fallen. So I guessed that the photos had been taken a few weeks before, right around the time we'd gotten our first big snowfall that year. When I flipped to the next page, I saw the names and photographs of each of the members. Three of Agatha's followers were female and the other three were male. Their ages appeared to range from young adult to senior citizen. Some of the pictures were headshots that reminded me of passport photos. Others were casual pictures taken at events or parties. They didn't look resentful or oppressed. None of the photos gave me the impression that the person shown was being held against their will. Agatha's followers looked like healthy, normal people. Some were smiling, others more serious. But there was one thing I found strange about the photographs. Each of the members of the Allegiant Redeemers looked familiar to me. I couldn't tell why or where I had seen them before, but I knew that I recognized them. I shouldn't have been familiar with a group of people whose disappearance hadn't even been released to the press yet. I turned to Chris, considering asking if the members looked familiar to him as well. But when I looked up, Chris was watching me crossly. There was a quiet irritability in his gaze, and I wondered what had caused it. You done with that? he asked. That's important stuff in there. I can't afford to lose any of it. Yeah, sure, I said, closing the folder and handing it back to him. I wondered if there was something in those papers that he didn't want me to see. He carefully placed the folder in the back seat, and when he returned his eyes to the road, he flipped on his blinker. That's it, he said, pointing to a plot of land on the west side of the highway. The long, unpaved driveway that led to the buildings at the center of the property still hadn't been plowed, the only indication as to where it led being provided by a pair of tire tracks that cut through the snow which I guessed had been made by Raymond or the police when they'd first come out to look for Agatha and her followers. Thankfully, Chris drove an old Ford Bronco, and it didn't seem to have any trouble making its way through the icy blanket of snow. 
Looks like someone's been out here, Chris said. When Chris pulled to a stop and we stepped out, all I remember is how unnervingly quiet it was. The only sound was that of our boots crunching through the snow. The sky was gray and flat, and it blended almost seamlessly with the horizon. I'm going to go shoot some more photos and take some notes, Chris said. Don't go far and try not to touch anything. I looked at the big metal building, its blue paint chipping away to reveal rusty sheet metal. I take it there's no security cameras, I said, turning to Chris. He shook his head. Not yet, he said. I'm going to put some up before we leave. If anything else goes on out here, I want to know about it. He took his camera and walked off through the snow in the direction of the two mobile homes. I looked back at the big blue building. I wondered if that was their congregation hall. I walked over to it and was surprised to find one of the side doors open. The door squeaked on rusty hinges as I wrestled it open. When I was inside, I saw a dimly lit but wide open space that was filled with what looked like church pews. Except, rather than most churches where all the pews faced the same direction, these were arranged so that every other row was turned back to face the one before it. They must have congregated sitting face to face with each other, I thought, somewhat unnerved at the concept. I began walking through the rows, looking for some of their literature or whatever records they kept, still curious about what exactly they believed. As I walked through the second row of pews, I found another photograph of the group, laying face down on the bench. In this photo, all the members were seated together, all of them smiling, and standing over them was Agatha, a silver robe hanging from her shoulders, something unmistakably dismal in her eyes. And just as I did when I'd seen their pictures on the drive there, I felt a strange certainty that I recognized these people. The Allegiant Redeemers looked familiar to me, but how could they? I kept searching through the pews, and tucked in the back of a seat rest I found a torn piece of paper with some writing on it. At the top of the sheet, just below the tear, were the words, The Subsequent Chronology. A short paragraph was typed out below it, but before I had a chance to read what it said, I heard Chris calling me from outside. I slid the piece of paper into my pocket and went outside to meet him. He was standing at the back of his Bronco, with the hatch pulled open. Find anything? he asked. I handed him the photograph of all the members sitting together. He inspected it for a moment. Anything else? he asked. No, I said. I couldn't say why I kept the piece of paper from him. I just did. Chris grabbed a hard case and slid it towards the tailgate. He popped it open, and inside were two wireless security cameras. Give me a hand with these, will you? he asked. He gave me one of the cameras and handed me an impact gun and a few screws. Go mount that above that door, he said, pointing at the metal building, and make sure it has a decent view of the driveway. I nodded and he took the other camera, presumably to go mount it by the mobile homes or the wellhouse. When the cameras were mounted and we'd turned each of them on, it was just after four o'clock. The sun was beginning to set and already I could feel the temperature dropping. I pulled my beanie down low over my ears, 
and I thought about the piece of paper in my pocket, the subsequent chronology. I wondered what it could mean. I looked at Chris, closing up the back of his truck. Why did I get the feeling that he was being evasive? I think that's enough for today, he said. Let's get home before we freeze. The drive back to the office was quiet. I didn't know why, but I kept feeling like Chris knew more than he was letting on. I thought about the folder in the back seat, and the pictures it contained of those oddly familiar faces. When we arrived back at the office, I helped Chris carry everything inside. When the car was unloaded, he told me he was running next door for a pack of cigarettes. I waited to see his figure walk past the front window, and then I grabbed the case file and ran it over to the copier. I took every page out and put it through the machine, looking anxiously over my shoulder as it flashed and buzzed. When it was done, I put the originals back in the folder and dropped it on Chris's desk before slipping the copies into my backpack. Chris came back from the store a few minutes later and I sat quietly at my desk until the clock hit 5 p.m. At home that night, I studied the wrinkled piece of paper titled The Subsequent Chronology that I'd found in the bizarre congregation hall. The words on it looked like they were written by a typewriter. They were unevenly spaced and sometimes bled into each other. I wondered what the term subsequent chronology even meant. Was it a list of events meant to occur subsequently to the group's disappearance? I didn't know. Whatever else had been written on the paper was torn away. What remained read as follows. At eventide our amalgam adjourns in the face of a likely man. But his is no face of humanity, for he is the human obscene. He will conjure two eyes, though he won't need them to see. And come dawn, his vision for the world will be displayed on the morning tree. I read it repeatedly, trying to make sense of its cryptic wording, and soon one of the lines started to jump out at me. He will conjure two eyes, though he won't need them to see. I thought immediately about the two cameras Chris had brought to the property. And then I thought about my suspicion that he was lying when asked if he'd heard of the Allegiant Redeemers. My frightened thoughts continued to spiral. And then I was reminded of something else Chris had told me. It had been when I'd first started working there. He'd said that he'd just recently opened his business. I went online and looked up the Wyoming Register of Business Licenses. I wanted to see exactly when C.M. Slaughter, private investigator, had opened. As it turned out, the date of incorporation was December 6th, right around the time the Allegiant Redeemers were alleged to have gone missing. I felt like the breath had been sucked out of me. Could Chris really be involved in this? Just as I had posed the question to myself, I noticed my phone light up. It was a text message, from none other than Chris himself. The cameras already picked something up. Check your email, the message read. And just when I'd finished reading it, a second message came through. I'm heading to the ranch right now. Meet me there? Meet me there had a question mark at the end of it. And still, when I read it, it seemed more like an obligation than an invitation. 
I opened my email and pulled up the video file Chris had sent. In the grainy black and white footage, a lone spotlight hangs like an orb in the darkness. It illuminates nothing but the snow-covered ground, the reflective white surface fading to black at the edges of the frame. But then, suddenly, something comes walking out of the darkness. It looks vaguely human, though no real concise details can be seen in the form. Dark and sinewy, it moves across the screen with finicky, stuttered movements. When I watched it, I remember thinking that the way it walked reminded me of stop-motion animation. It completely lacked the fluidity you can usually see in someone's movements. For a moment, it stands perfectly in the center of the frame, as if its sole intention is to make itself seen. Its narrow face seems to be tilted up at the camera, some hint of an expression there, some fleeting indication of features, but nothing objective. And then, without warning, the screen goes black. According to the timestamp, it had been shot just a half an hour before. I went back a few frames and paused, gripped by the shadowy figure on the screen. But his is no face of humanity, for he is the human obscene, said a voice in my head. Another text came through from Chris. Almost there, he said. You coming? I pushed away from my desk and stared at the screen. It was 10.30 at night, and I was being called out to a field in the freezing cold darkness because my boss saw a blurry figure on video? Why did I get the feeling that I was being lured into something? My eyes fell idly on Chris's email signature. Christopher M. Slaughter, Private Eye, it said. I repeated it out loud. Private Eye. And then it hit me. He will conjure two eyes though he won't need them to see. It wasn't Chris. It was Raymond. The eyes weren't the two cameras. The eyes were me and Chris. I snatched my car keys off the counter and ran out the front door of my apartment. When I got out onto the highway, I pushed my rusty little Subaru as fast as it could go. I repeated the subsequent chronology in my head as I drove trying to glean whatever deeper meaning from it that I could, hoping against hope to prepare myself for whatever I was about to walk into. I gritted my teeth, flooring the gas pedal as I neared the outer reaches of town. The little dots of light scattered across the horizon grew more and more distant as I descended upon the darkness of the open country. The property appeared empty when I arrived at 17 South Winford Lane, but as I made my way up the long, snowy driveway, still pushing my rickety station wagon for all it was worth, I saw something that made my heart sink. Chris's Bronco was parked haphazardly next to one of the buildings, its headlights still on, the driver's side door hanging wide open. I pulled my car to a sliding stop and grabbed a flashlight out of the glove box, flipping it on as I stepped out into the cold, dark world. Already my heart was racing. I expected that atrocious figure I'd seen in the video to come walking out from behind every corner. I checked Chris's car to see if he was inside, but it was empty. 
The engine wasn't running, but the keys were still inside. Chris! I yelled, but I got no response aside from an eerie, fading echo. As I scoured the ground for some indication as to where he'd gone, I noticed a dark, reddish spot in the snow. I could tell almost immediately it was blood. I walked over to the spot, and a few feet away I found another, and then another. I panned my flashlight across the snow, illuminating the trail of blood that led to a wooded area behind the cabins. At first, the blood seemed to fall in globs, spotting the snow every few feet. But by the time it reached the woods, it was a steady, constant line of red, drawn into the snow. Chris! I yelled again, already moving towards the woods. I had nothing but a flashlight and a pocket knife to protect myself with, but I couldn't turn back. I followed the bloody trail to its gruesome end. Just a few paces into the woods, the blood stopped and puddled around the base of an oak tree. My trembling hands drew the beam of light up the tree until I saw Chris's body impaled on a broken tree branch ten feet in the air. His arms and legs dangled limply against the trunk, the sharp tip of the broken tree branch protruding from his shattered ribcage. Below the body, blood trickled down the face of the tree, navigating the grooves in the bark to create garishly intricate patterns, still trickling down to the snow as I stood there in shock. Come dawn, his vision for the world will be displayed on the morning tree. I wondered why it was called the morning tree. Perhaps because it was situated due east of the buildings. I sat in my car with the doors locked while I called 911, and I remained there until the police arrived. As they began to work the crime scene, photographing the horrific display made of Chris's body, a tall female officer asked if she could collect a statement from me. I sat down with her, and the first thing she asked was what Chris and I were even doing there. Still dazed, I told her that Agatha Treacher's brother had hired us. The officer looked at me, frowning. I worked this case, she said. Agatha Treacher didn't have a brother. Of course. Of course she didn't, I mumbled almost laughing hysterically. And finally, it clicked. How could I have been so stupid? I realized why the faces of the Allegiant Redeemers all looked so familiar. Because each of those faces together would form a perfect composite of Raymond Treacher. At eventide, our amalgam adjourns in the face of a likely man. But his is no face of humanity, for he is the human obscene. Raymond Treacher wasn't looking for the missing cult. He was the missing cult, united in a single body, a total perversion of humanity. But of course I couldn't tell that to the police, or anyone else really. And when it was all over, I was just left wondering what I could have done differently. If I had shared the subsequent chronology with Chris, instead of keeping it to myself, would he have perhaps been more skeptical of going out there on his own? Could he have 
lived? It's questions like these that I still can't answer. Questions like these that make me lay awake at night. That, of course, and the knowledge that whatever put Chris's body up on that tree has never been found. It's still out there somewhere. The police remain adamant that they're searching for his killer. They've released theories about how they think someone could have done that to him, using rope to string him up and so forth. But having been there that night, I know better. I know that whatever dragged Chris through the snow and skewered him to that tree was anything but human. Hey, Jeff here. Uh, If you enjoy my podcast, I just want to let you know that I have a Patreon that you can subscribe to. It's $3 per episode, and you get to listen to every episode a few days early. Plus, you also get access to my full-length audiobook, Solace. It's sort of a cosmic horror slash mystery story where this journalist uncovers uh, unexplainable disappearance and sort of becomes obsessed with it. You can listen to the first 30 minutes for free in the episode titled Solace. The Patreon also has its own RSS feed, so you can listen on whatever podcasting app you like. And the link for it is in the show notes, as well as in the bio for the show. But if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. You can also leave a rating or write a review. That goes a long way for helping the show get listeners. You can follow me on social media. The links for Instagram and Twitter will be in the show notes as well. And of course, just thank you for being here. It really uh, seriously means a lot that you listen to this. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God. And we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.